Chapter Seventeen of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Seventeen. If Victoria Ray had accepted Neville Carrad's invitation to be Lady MacGregor's guest in his at Denon Alderon. Many things might have been different, but she had wished to be independent and had chosen to go to the Hotel de la Cabane. When she went down to dinner in Sally Almanjar, shortly after seven o'clock on the evening of her arrival, only two other tables were occupied, for it was late in the season and tourists were leaving Algiers. No one who had been on board the Charthway was there and Victoria saw that she was the only woman in the room. At one table sat a happy party of Germans, apparently dressed from head to foot by Dr. Yeager, and at another were two middle-aged men who had the appearance of commercial travelers. By and by an elderly Jew came in, and dinner had reached the stage of peppery mutton ragout. When the door opened again, Victoria's place was almost opposite, and involuntarily she glanced up. The handsome Arab who had crossed from Marseilles on the boat, saluted her with grave courtesy, as he met her look and passed on, casting down his eyes. He was shown to a table at some distance, the manner of the Arab waiter who conducted him being so impressive that Victoria was sure the newcomer must be a person of importance. He was beautifully dressed, as before, and the Germans stared at him frankly, but he did not seem to be aware of their existence. Special dishes arrived for him, and evidently he had been expected. There was but one waiter to serve the meal, and not only did he somewhat neglect the other diners for the sake of the latest arrival, but the landlord appeared and stood talking with the Arab, while he ate, with an air of respect and consideration. The Germans, who had nearly finished their dinner when Victoria came in, now left the table, using their toothpicks and staring with the open-eyed interest of children at the picturesque figure near the door. The commercial travelers and the Jew followed. Victoria also was ready to go when the landlord came to her table, bowing. Mademoiselle, he said in French, I am charged with a message from an Arab gentleman of distinction, who honors my house by his presence. Sidi Elardin ben Elhajah Masoud is the son of Anaka, and therefore he is a lord, and Mademoiselle need have no uneasiness that he would condescend to an indiscretion. He instructs me to present his respectful compliments to Mademoiselle, whom he saw on the ship which brought him home, after carrying through a mission in France. Seeing that Mademoiselle traveled alone, and intends perhaps to continue doing so according to the custom of her courageous and intelligent countrywomen, Cédé Medillon, wishes to say that as a person who has influence in his own land, he would be pleased to serve Mademoiselle if she would honor him by accepting his offer in the spirit in which it is made, that is, as the chivalrous service of a gentleman to a lady. He will not dream of addressing Mademoiselle unless she graciously permits. As the landlord talked on, Victoria glanced across the room at the Arab, and though his eyes were bent upon his plate, he seemed to feel the girl's look, as if by a kind of telepathy. 
instantly meeting it with what seemed to her questioning eyes a sincere and disarming gaze. Tell Sidi Medin ben el Hajj Hazad that I thank him, she answered, rewarded for her industry in keeping up French, which she spoke fluently with the Parisian accent she had caught as a child in Paris. It is possible that he can help me, and I should be glad to talk with him. In that case, see, Medina, would suggest that Mademoiselle grant him a short interview in the private sitting-room of my wife, Madame Constante, who will be honored, the fat man replied promptly. It would not be wise for Mademoiselle to be seen by strangers talking with the distinguished gentleman, whose acquaintance she is to make. This largely for her own sake, but also for his, or rather, for the sake of certain diplomatic interests which he is appointed to carry out. Officially, he is supposed to have left Algiers today, and it is by his permission that I mention the matter to Mademoiselle. I will do whatever you think best, said Victoria, who was too glad of the opportunity to worry about conventionalities. She was so young and inexperienced in the ways of society that a small transgression against social laws appeared of little importance to a girl situated as she was. With the time immediately after dinner suit Mademoiselle for C. Madrine to pay his respects. Victoria answered that she would be pleased to talk with C. Madrine as soon as convenient to him. Monsieur Conchamp hurried away to prepare his wife. While he was absent, the Arab did not again look at Victoria, and she understood that this reserve arose from delicacy. Her heart began to beat, and she felt that the way to her sister might be opening at last. The fact that she did feel this made her tell herself that it must be true. Instinct was not given for nothing. She thought, too, of Stephen Knight. He would be glad tomorrow when meeting her at luncheon in his friend's house to hear good news. Already she had been to see Janine Suvice in the, the curiosity shop, and had bought a string of amber prayer beads. She had got an introduction to the governor from the American consul, whom she had visited before unpacking lest the consular office should be closed for the day, and she had obtained an appointment at the palace for the next morning. But all that was not much to tell Mr. Knight. It seemed to her that even in a few hours she ought to have accomplished more. Now, however, the key of the door which opened into the golden silence might be waiting for her hand. In three or four minutes the landlord came back and begged to show her his wife's petite salon. This time, as she passed the Arab, she bowed, and gave him a grateful smile. He rose and stood with his head slightly bent until she had gone out remaining in the dining-room until the landlord returned to say that he was expected by mademoiselle remember Sibirine, said in arabic to the fat man everybody is to be discreet now and later i shall see that all are rewarded for obedience thou art considerate even of the humblest replied the half-breed using the word thou as all arabs use it thy presence is an honor for my house and all in it is thine See, Mayor Dedin, who had never been in the Hotel de la Caspar before, 
and would not have considered it worthy of his patronage if he had not an object in coming, allowed himself to be shown the door of Madame Constance's salon. On the threshold the landlord retired, and the young man was hardly surprised to find, on entering, that Madame was not in the room. Victoria was there alone, but free from self-consciousness, as she always was, she received C. Meredith without embarrassment. She saw no reason to distrust him, just because he was an Arab. Now how glad she was that she had learned Arabic. She began to speak diffidently at first, stammering and haltering a little, because, though she could read the language well after nine years of constant study, only once had she spoken with an Arab, a man, in New York from whom she had a few lessons, having learned what she could of the accent from phrase-books. Her way had been to talk to herself aloud, but the flash of surprised delight which lit up the dark face told her that C. Mitterdine understood. Wonderful, he exclaimed, my best hope was that French might come easily to thy lips, as I have little English. I have a sister married to one of thy countrymen, Victoria explained at once. I do not know where she is living, and it is in finding out that I need help. Even on the ship I wish to ask thee if thou hadst knowledge of her husband. But to speak then seemed impossible. It is a fortunate chance that thou shouldst have come to this hotel for I think thou wilt do what thou canst for me. Then she went on and told him that her sister was the wife of Captain Cassim ben who had once lived in Algiers. See, Madrin, who had dropped his eyes as she spoke of the fortunate chance which had brought him to the hotel, listened thoughtfully and with keen attention to her story, asking no questions, yet showing his interest so plainly that Victoria was encouraged to go on. Didst thou ever hear the name Cassim ben Helim? she asked. Yes, I have heard it. The Arab replied, I have friends who knew him, and myself have seen Cassim ben Helim. Thou hast seen him, Victoria cried, clasping her hands tightly together. She longed to press them over her heart, which was like a bird beating its wings against the bars of a cage. Long ago, I am much younger than he. Yes, I see that, Victoria answered. But thou knewest him. That is something. And my sister, didst thou ever hear of her? We of the Muslim faith do not speak of the wives who are friends, even when our friends are absent. Yet I have a relative in Algiers who might know something, a lady who is no longer young. I will go to her tonight, and all that is in her heart she will tell me. She has lived long in Algiers and always when I come I pay her my respect. But there is a favor I would beg in return for any help I can give, and will give gladly. I am supposed to be already on my way south to finish a diplomatic mission, and for reasons connected with the French government. I have had to make it appear that I started today with my servant. There is also a reason connected with Sikhism, which makes it important that nothing I may do should be known to thy European friends. It is for his sake, especially, that I ask thy silence, and whatsoever might bring harm to him, if he be still on the earth, would also harm thy sister. Wilt thou give me thy word, O white rose of another land? 
that thou wilt keep thine own counsel? I give thee my word, and with it my trust, said the girl. Then I swear that I will not fail thee, and though until I have seen my cousin I cannot speak positively, yet I think what I can do will be more than any other could. Wilt thou hold thyself free of engagements with thy European friends until I bring news? I have promised to lunch to-morrow with people who have been kind, but rather than risk a delay in hearing from thee, I will send word that I am prevented from going. Thou hast the right spirit, and I thank thee for thy good faith. But it may be well not to send that message. Thy friends might think it strange and suspect thee of hiding something. It is better to give no cause for questioning. Go then, to their house, but say nothing of having met me, or of any new hope in thine heart. Yet let the hope remain, and be to thee like the young moon that riseth over the desert, to show the weary traveller a rill of sweet water, and an oasis of date-palms. And now I will bid thee farewell with a night of dreams, in which thy dearest desires shall be fulfilled before thine eyes. I go to my cousin on thy business. Good night, said he. Henceforth my hope is in thee. Victoria held out her hand, and C. Madrine clasped it, bowing with the courtesy of his race. He was nearer to her than he had been before, and she noticed a perfume which hung about his clothing, a perfume that seemed to her like the East, heavy and rich, suggestive of mystery and secret things. It brought to her mind what she had read about harems, beautiful, languid women. Yet it suited C. Maturin's personality, and somehow did not make him seem effeminate. See, he said, in the poetic language which became him as his embroidered clothes, and the haunting perfume became him. See how thine hand lies in mine, like a pearl that has dropped into the hollow of an autumn leaf. But praise be to Allah, autumn and I are yet far apart. I am in my summer, as thou, lady, art in thine early spring. And I vow that thou shalt never regret confiding thy hand into mine hand, thy trust to my loyalty. As he spoke, he released her fingers gently, and, turning, went out of the room without another word or glance. When he had gone, Victoria stood still, looking at the door which C. Melrin had shut noiselessly. If she had not lived during all the years since Saidi's last letter, in the hope of some such moment as this, she would have felt that she had come into a world of romance, as she listened to the man of the East, speaking the language of the East. But she had read too many Arabic tales and poems to find his speech strange. At school her studies of her sister's adopted tongue had been confined to dry lesson books. But when she had been free to choose her own literature, in New York and London, she had read more widely. People whom she had told of her sister's marriage and her own mission had sent her several rare volumes, among others a valuable old copy of the Koran, and she had devoured them all, delighting in the faculty which grew with practice. Now it seemed quite simple to be talking to Sidi Marine ben el Haj Mesharad as she had talked. It was no more romantic or strange than all of life was romantic and strange. 
Rather did she feel that at last she was face to face with reality. He does know something about Cassim, she said, half aloud, and searching her instinct, she still thought that she could trust him to keep faith with her. He was not playing. She believed that there was sincerity in his eyes. The next morning, when Victoria called at the governor's palace, and heard that Captain Cassim ben Halim was supposed to have died in Constantinople years ago. She was not cast down. I know, Signor Doreen. Doesn't think he's dead, she told herself. There was a note for her at the hotel, and though the writer had addressed the envelope to Mademoiselle Ray in an educated French handwriting, the letter inside was written in beautiful Arab lettering, an intentionally flattering tribute to her accomplishment. See, Bertrand informed her that his hope had been justified, and that in conversation with his cousin his own surmises had been confirmed. A certain plan was suggested, which he wished to propose to Mademoiselle Ray, but as it would need some discussion, there was not time to bring it forward before the hour when she must go out to keep her engagement. On her return, however, he begged that she would see him in the salon of Madame Costant, where she would find him waiting. Meanwhile, he ventured to remind her that, for the present, secrecy was even more necessary than he had at first supposed. He would be able to explain why, fully and satisfactorily, when they met in the afternoon. With this appointment to look forward to, it was natural that Victoria should excuse herself to Lady MacGregor earlier than most people cared to leave in on Eldoran. The girl was more excited than she had ever been in her life, and it was only by the greatest self-control that she kept, or believed that she kept her manner as usual while with Stefan in the white garden of lilies. She was happy because she saw her feet already upon the path which would lead through the golden silence to her sister. But there was a drawback to her happiness, a fly in the amber, as in one of the prayer beads she had bought of Janine Soubise. Her secret had to be kept from the man of whom she thought as a very staunch friend. She felt guilty in talking with Stephen Knight and accepting his sympathy as if she were hiding nothing from him. But she must be true to her promise, and see Myrtlerine had the right to exact it. Though, of course, Mr. Knight might have been accepted if only C. Myrtlerine knew how loyal he was. But C. Myrtlerine did not know, and she could not explain. It was consoling to think of the time when Stefan might be told everything, and she wished almost unconsciously that it was his help which she had to rely upon now. End of chapter 17 Recording by Mike Vendetti www.mikevendetti.com